Hi, this is Damien Christoph from 100 Not Out and The Wellness Guys. Become a change maker in the health industry today. All you need to do is enroll for the Functional Nutrition course and become an internationally recognized expert on the vitalistic philosophy of food and nutrition with our friends at the Functional Nutrition Academy. Register now and receive a six-week bonus accreditation course providing you with the business tools to start and grow your own business and a whopping $1,000 discount. So don't delay and start your health career today at www.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash functional. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Sit back, light the fire, kick your shoes off, because it's time for That Paleo Show with your favorite caveman, Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Brett Hill, and this week I'm joined by Hilda Labrada Gore. Now, I have no idea if I said that middle name right, but I just wanted to have a go at it because it sounded cool. Um, she's a health coach. She's a group fitness professional. She's the host of another podcast, which is the Wise Traditions Podcast, and she's the director of operations at Body and Soul. She's sharing lots of great information all around the web about health and wellness, diet in particular, uh, dentistry. We're going to talk about all different topics today. Uh, but welcome to the show, Hilda. Thank you, Brett. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be on your show. My pleasure. How do I go with the middle name? Did I get it right? You did. I was impressed. It's yes. it's Hispanic, you know, Labrada. I mean, if you oh, wanted to say it with a right. Spanish accent. So, I needed to, to roll the R a little bit more. All right. Maybe just it. a little. <laughs> I kind of I Aussified it, you know, add my little Aussie accent to it and just bastardized it a little bit because that's kind of what we tend to do. But that's okay. Um, Hilda, you're doing some great stuff. Um, you know, obviously, by the sound of it, started out sort of more in the fitness side of things, but have moved into the the diet side of things as well. Tell us about about your journey. What made you decide to become a fitness professional in the first place? Well, this is my story. It actually starts before I was born. What happened was when my mom was expecting me, she got exposed to the German measles. And when a pregnant woman gets exposed to the German measles, her baby is most certainly going to have some kind of complication, if not a serious birth defect. The doctors thought I'd be born deaf, dumb, or blind. But thank goodness, I was born with a defect, but it wasn't quite that serious. It was a hole in my heart between the lower two ventricles. And they actually were worried that I wouldn't live very long. So they performed open heart surgery on me when I was nine years old at the National Institute for Health here in DC. And I'm so grateful because I think this got me going on my journey, Brett, because I realized the fragility of life. You know, I realized, oh my gosh, my body, I better take good care of it as long as I can. So I never really got into, you know, drugs or drinking or anything like that because I just thought, I really want to protect this. And so when I was a young girl and, you know, in high school and, you know, even in college, I just started working out. I just loved working out. But I was definitely of the mindset that, you know, calories in, just burn it off, you know, cal calories out. It doesn't matter what you eat as long as you work it off. And I think that served me okay, you know, for a while. But I really had a wake up call when my best friend became sick with chronic fatigue. And yeah. You know, she was just so ill and conventional medicine had nothing to offer her. 
And she was trying every diet under the sun. She tried macrobiotics. She tried vegetarian. She just kept trying all these things. And I was just on the sidelines kind of watching her and wondering what was up. And when she came across the wise traditions, this ancestral health kind of diet, she realized, oh my gosh, this is making a difference for me. And it wasn't complicated. It wasn't a diet of deprivation. It was kind of a diet of enjoying and embracing real food. And so when I saw her, I thought, gosh, you know, maybe there is something to this dietary thing. Maybe I should start changing my diet because I was just about whatever, tossing fish sticks on the dinner table for my family and maybe a few little baby carrots on the side. I mean, I was doing the best I could, but I didn't really understand this whole fuel body connection. But little by little, the light turned on. Nice. So, what was it that made you decide that you might take that on board then? Was there any particular uh, event or was it just a sort of osmosis of seeing your friend's journey? It really was osmosis because I have to say, I, despite the hole in my heart and that rocky start of my life, I was going strong. You know, I felt good. Although, if I stop and think about it, sometimes I would have to stop in the middle of my workout. I'd be teaching a group fitness class, you know, some cardio and some kind of boot camp stuff in the morning. And around mid-workout, I would feel my blood sugar dip. And I would think, oh my gosh, I, I have to have something. So I would grab like a power bar or anything I could get my hands on almost and just kind of start nibbling on that. And then I would feel okay and I would finish my workout. But I never really you know, thought about why am I having this happen until I started making changes to my diet. And when I started to eat more in line with the ancestral health movement, I suddenly had sustained blood sugar levels so that I wouldn't feel that dip in the middle of my workout. Just to, to make it really clear to your listeners, and maybe they've experienced this as well, like I would just have your kind of typical American breakfast. I would have a little bowl of cereal with some milk and maybe a few berries on it. And so there was nothing really, you know, a strong protein or some good fats to really carry me. And so again, I would feel that blood sugar dip. But when I changed and started having like you know, eggs for breakfast with bacon or yogurt with maybe some fruit and granola, like, oh my gosh, like it was just night and day. Now I can go till two in the afternoon without needing anything. It's amazing. So I, I guess I didn't have the aha right away, but I, it did eventually hit me that something had to change and I'm so glad it did. Yeah, and you know, I love the way uh, Nora Gagaldas, she's a good friend of mine, and the way she talks about the whole, you know, fat and protein as fuel, and, and she, she always describes it as, you know, that, that the carbs are kind of like the kindling on your fire, you know, they can help it burn bright, but they don't last very long, you know, that the, 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 the protein is kind of like the sticks in between. You know, they last a little bit longer, um, take a little bit more to get going, but the fat is kind of like the big fat log that you can just chuck on the fire and then have a sustained uh, energy for a much longer period of time. And I think that's such a good description of what you're talking about. Absolutely. That is so awesome. And it makes me so happy that people are getting this message. Your podcast and other resources like it are letting people know fat does not make you fat. You don't know how long in the US at least that that was a, a misunderstanding and a myth that was promulgated that fat would make you fat. And the opposite happened as people started eating their low fat diet, obesity went up in this country, not to mention other health complications. Yeah. And we still get it here. I don't know what it's like over there, but you know, people won't sort of overtly come out and say fat makes you fat, but, but the sort of underlying principle still comes through so often in terms of what foods people are recommending and, and what the recommended diets are and, and what people, you know, the food plate and the food pyramid and all those sort of things, you know, it, it's still out there and it's still getting shared. 
I know that is so true and it's so sad. And part of it is, I think, these companies that have started promoting these low-fat products, especially when this was a huge wave in the 80s and 90s, let's say, well, they don't want to pull their products from the shelf, so they just keep pushing it out there. And, you know, it's got here in the U.S., it has a stamp of approval from the American Heart Association. Low fat is good for you. And so even though the government has even made some turns, and science definitely has proven that this is not the case anymore, that fat makes you fat, there's still all this stuff out there. You're right, that message is still out there. So there, it's a very confusing time. And that's why Um, my Wise Traditions podcast and the Weston A. Price Foundation that I'm associated with just keeps pointing back, you know, as your podcast does as well. Like we keep pointing back because that's where you can see, even looking back at pictures of people back in the day, how there wasn't obesity in the 1930s and 1940s and before that. Like people were not struggling with all the health concerns they are today. So we point back to those times to find our good health today. Yeah, it, it's so important. And look, Western A Price is something that um, you know many people will have heard of. We've spoken about it before on this podcast, but maybe not for a little while. But there'll be a lot of other people who aren't really sure who Western A Price is and, and what his foundation's all about. So, do you want to give us a bit of a history and a bit of background into Western A Price? Yes, I love telling his story because he was just a fascinating man. He lived um, from the late 1800s to about 1947 or so, and he was a dentist. But not just a dentist. He was a dentist and a researcher. And so what happened was, believe it or not, Brett, he used to get the National Geographic magazine and he would leaf through it and he would see these beautiful people who had these amazing smiles. Of course, as a dentist, he was very interested in their smiles and their teeth. Um, But so they had these amazing smiles and they just looked vibrant and healthy and strong and fertile. And so he asked himself two questions. One, do these people really exist? And two, if they do, what are they eating? But he didn't just ask them academically. He decided to go on a world tour. And this is like in the 1930s. So he went from Switzerland. I mean, he went to Switzerland where people were eating, you know, dairy and cheese and butter to Alaska where they were eating, you know, fish and seal blubber and whales and all these things to Kenya where they were eating goat and meat and milk. And so all these diets were really different. But what he noticed is all these people had something in common, and that was this vibrant health. And it stemmed from their eating their traditional diets. And how did he put all of this together? Well, he started taking pictures of those who were eating their traditional diets and saw how broad their faces were. And again, adding up all the little signs that their posture was good, they were fertile, they were strong, they were hearing, their eyesight was keen. And then he started taking pictures of people in the villages or tribes who were eating a more modern diet that did have access to refined flours and sugars. And he noticed that their faces were changing, their faces were not as broad, and their teeth were crowded and crooked, and their posture was bad. And actually, there's a whole book that your listeners could check out that he wrote. It's called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And even if you just flip through to look at the pictures, it is fascinating because you can really see the difference between those who are eating the traditional foods of their ancestors and those who ate the modern diet. Yeah, and I think people find that fascinating, don't they, Hilda? Because I think when we think about our diet and we think, oh, yeah, like we sort of understand now that maybe what I eat might affect my energy or it might affect my digestion or it might affect, um, 
you know, the, the my immune system or, you know, things like that. We, we're starting to understand those links. But I think, you know, to think that what I'm eating is going to have such a drastic effect on my physical body and, and particularly the, the structure of my physical body, um, you know, things like the, the shape of your mouth, you know, the shape of your cranium, you know, people find that sometimes a bit of a stretch, I think. They find that almost hard to believe that it could have such a drastic impact on something seemingly so fixed and, and often people think of it as quite static. Absolutely. And that's why I was trying to say a picture is worth a thousand words because they, if they look at these pictures, they will find them very persuasive. Mm. The other thing is, Brett, all they have to do is look around. And I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I have to tell you in the US, I look around and I see all these young people with narrow faces, children wearing glasses, young people who are hunched over. Do you know what I mean? Like I can see, forget the ailments that are digestive. I mean, and it's actually hard to forget these, you know, because they have all these illnesses and anxiety and depression and all these problems even with their skin. But but just looking at their facial structure and their posture is is kind of eye-opening. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, you know, people will look at that in our modern society and often it's very easy to put it down to other things, you know, so they'll put it down to our sedentary lifestyles, our lack of exercise, you know, uh, those sort of things. And, and and so, we think, oh, well, maybe it's more to do with that. But I think, you know, what Western A. Price was able to do is, is do some quite clever comparisons to people who were living a similar lifestyle but with a very different diet. You know, I think there was one in, a, it, was, it was in Italy in the hills, wasn't it, where he was able to compare two groups who were, who were living a very similar lifestyle but quite a different diet. I don't know if it was Italy, but I hope so because <laughs> this is what I want to say. I hope it was Italy because the foundation is actually taken to sending me around to places he had been oh, nice. to kind of see what's happening there now. Yes, I got to go to Kenya and Zimbabwe this past year, and it was amazing and fascinating. And I'll tell you why I went. Brett, a Maasai tribesman contacted the Weston A. Price Foundation. Wow. He he contacted them and said, please send someone over. We're all getting sick. And the Maasai, as you know, were this hale and hearty tribe well known for their height and their, you know, virility and all this. And he said, I have diabetes. My wife has asthma. And he was really concerned for his village. So here I am, this little Latina lady <laughs> from the United States. I headed over there. I went to his remote village of Oiti and Matapato. And I'm talking to these Maasai. They could not be more different than I was. But this is the cool thing. Dr. Price's message and, you know, the paleo message of returning to traditional diets resonated with them. I was saying, please don't eat the way the modern people eat. Please eat the way your ancestors ate. And they were so moved that they decided as a group, because they don't make kind of individualized decisions. They, as a group, were like, starting today, we are going back to our ways. It was the most beautiful, amazing That's thing. So cool. And then I got to go back and they had indeed started changing their ways to return to their traditional foods. It was such a beautiful thing to behold. And so I've gone there and this fall, I'm going to go to Peru and I'm going to also give some talks, but this is the cool thing too. I'm going to ask indigenous elders, like, tell me about your diet because I kind of want to see for myself, right? Like, is this true? Were they living, you know, as close to the land as we think they were? And are they as well as I suspect they are? Like, I'm really, really excited to kind of walk in Dr. Price's footsteps. Yeah, that sounds awesome and, and fascinating. And, you know, the way you say Peru is awesome as well. I love that. The, the little <laughs> and uh, But, uh, you know, you should chat to a friend of mine, uh, Cindy O'Meara. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's from Australia. She's a, a nutritionist as well. And um, 
she's awesome. And she's also just recently been over and visited the Maasai as well. And, and she's done an amazing documentary called What's With Wheat. And, and she talks a lot about ancestral diets. So, uh, you, you guys could chat about that for ages, I reckon. It'd be a great one for your podcast show. You'll have to check oh, out. Oh, I would love to talk to her. Yeah. Yes, please do get us connected. I will. I will. But, um, yeah, look, it's a, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating to start looking back at just how amazing our bodies are when they're given a chance. You know, we, we often tend to think that, um, you know, we, we start to think of our bodies as quite fragile and frail and, you know, incapable of dealing with the world around us because it's kind of the messages we get given, I think, is that, you know, we're incapable of maintaining our health ourselves. We need external factors to come in, whether that's, you know, vaccinations, whether that's medications, whether that's, um, you know, supplements, whatever it is, we need all this stuff to help make us healthy. When when the reality is that actually, you know, if we look back at these people, they were very, very strong and robust and healthy by just giving the body what it needs. You know, this, this body that had evolved to be perfectly suited to that amazing environment really is very strong and robust um, without the need for the, the external intervention. Oh my gosh, I love what you're saying. It resonates with me so much especially because I interviewed this man in Kenya, in that village I was describing, who was so old, he didn't even know how old he was. <laughs> he was definitely like over 100. Like we couldn't quite pinpoint how old he was. But he said to me, you know, nowadays, in his own language, I had a translator, by the way, but he said, now, you know, they say everyone must get a shot because diseases are coming. He said, but in my day, we didn't get any shots. And we didn't get sick, like he said. You know, if we felt like a shiver coming on, we would just drink the milk from the cow. And, hmm. you know, he just, he said, now when it's going to rain, the children have to put on sweaters. But when I was younger, we would just go outside and, and play in the rain. Like it was just such a contrast. You're right. I, I'm just blown away when I think about, yes, the resilience of our bodies. And if given half a chance, they will heal themselves. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Such a fascinating experience. I'm so jealous of you for traveling around and going to these places, Hilda. It sounds absolutely amazing. And, uh, and you know, the insights you're going to glean from that are just going to be absolutely incredible. So, um, you know, it's interesting when we look at these different cultures, though, Hilda. You know, if you go to the Maasai and then you go to, you know, I know I've looked into, you know, there's some tribes in Papua New Guinea near Australia here, uh, and they eat, uh, you know, 80% sweet potatoes, essentially. You know, the Maasai will drink lots of milk and, um, you know, you go up to the, the Inuits and they have lots of fat and blubber. So, you know, these cultures, whilst they all have, you know, a similarity in terms of that sort of real food message, they, they eat quite differently. Um, you know, how does Western A. Price and the Western A. Price Foundation approach that in terms of the recommendations they make for people? Because obviously those, those cultures are quite different. They are. And that's a great question, Brett. What they did was they took what Dr. Price found and consolidated it and added just a couple of other principles. So they made a list of 13 principles that were the factors in common from these very, very diets. The first one, for example, is that the people ate no refined or denatured foods. So they didn't have some fancy plant or, you know, chemical I don't know how you say it in English, actually, but like they didn't have like a factory, um, you know, I was going to say fabrica, but they didn't have a factory that was making all these things. They were eating foods in a very simple form. So that was one way that they were able to maintain their health. That was the way all the different groups that he saw, they had that in common. That's how they preserved their health. And then another one was actually, and surprisingly, they all had some sort of animal food in their diet. Dr. Price was pretty convinced that he would come across some people who were very healthy, who ate only 
plant-based foods yeah. or you know, vegetables, but no, he did not find that. So that was another surprising factor. And then in terms of fat, their fat content varied a lot. Like I guess, for example, in Alaska, they needed to have you know, the, all that extra fat to maintain their body temperatures at a certain level. And so they had like the highest percentage of fatty salt, whereas the Maasai probably had a lower percentage of fat. But so I would say for people who get confused and are wondering, oh my gosh, like what should I do? I mean, these 13 principles are helpful, but it's also pre helpful, I think, to look back at your own ancestry and see what were my forefathers eating, just as a, a little clue as to what might work best for you. And so, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And many people would not really know what their ancestry is and, and trying to define exactly where that comes from. And, you know, obviously, you get back a few generations, it starts to get a bit messy with people coming from all different parts of the globe often as well. So, you know, it, it makes that concept, I guess, a little bit harder sometimes too. Um, but I definitely think, you know, that, that principle of understanding where your ancestors are from is very, very sound. Um when we look at, I guess, the more traditional diets, you know, if we go right back, um, then they were often very simple. Um, but I know with the Western A Price Foundation, you know, we do add in things like uh, fermented foods and cultured foods, which um, I guess, you know, whilst they've been around for a really long time, um, from an evolutionary perspective, some people may say that they're even seen as being slightly more recent as well. You know, they do involve a bit of processing and a bit of refining in order to get them to the stage of, you know, being edible. How does that fit in with the Western A Price approach? Well, I actually think in some senses, we all process our food, for example, just by cooking it, right? That changes yeah. the chemical composition of it. And so fermented food, I guess, may be seen as rather recent, but since I didn't live in the Paleolithic era, I can't tell you <laughs> how far back they began it. You know what I mean? But I do believe that it's not difficult to make a fermented food. Like if you were going to make sour cream, for example, you literally could just get the milk from the cow, have it, you know, maybe start curdling. I haven't made sour cream, so this is not a recipe for <laughs> all your listeners. But, you know, some of these things happen kind of naturally. And they discovered that, I mean, we discovered later the science facts that it's good to have these cultures and enzymes and these active things come into our bodies and help populate our positive gut bacteria, you know, and all that. So we know now that that is good for you. And But they probably did it more almost instinctively, I want to say. Like, I can't believe how easy it is to make sauerkraut, for example. I believe it's really just like cabbage and salt and water and you stick it in a jar. Again, I haven't made that, so don't follow it, it me. Is, it is literally <laughs> just that. I've actually got some sitting right next to me on the bench right now and that's all I do. Do you? It's, it's chopped oh my up gosh. cabbage. Mash, you just mash it. What you do is you chop up the cabbage really fine, all right, and then you sprinkle it really generously with salt, and then you massage it really clean. Wash your hands really well, uh, and then massage it really vigorously with your hands until like for like ten or twenty minutes until all of the liquid starts to get drawn out of the sauerkraut. And so if you do it for long enough, you don't even need to add water. The liquid actually just comes up enough, um, but you can add a little bit of water just to make sure that the water covers the cabbage um, and then that's it and then you just put it on the bench uh, I put a little uh, I put a flat piece of cabbage across the top so that I can and then put a little jar inside of it to hold the cabbage down below the water line so that it stays nice and healthy and then I put a little cloth over the top of it and it just sits there for three days to three weeks 
and then it's ready to go. You just kind of smell it, and when it smells like it's ready to go, that's it. It's really simple. And so, you know, oh. I, th- I think probably what happened, Hilda, was that, you know, probably in a paleo times, they didn't consciously eat fermented food, but I'm tipping right. if they came across a piece of fruit that had fallen and, you know, started to ferment a little bit but was still, you know, looking pretty good, you know, that would still be a very tasty morsel for someone in a paleo time. And so, I imagine they probably ate lots of fermented products. They just didn't necessarily consciously ferment their foods. Very good point. Very good point. And right now, I have to admit, I'm hanging my head in shame because I always say, I'm so busy podcasting, I just have to buy my sauerkraut and you're making your own. I'm really impressed. It takes it takes minutes, Hilda. It'll take you less time to make than it'll take to go to the shop and buy some, I promise you. It's, it's actually a really easy one. So, yeah, I, I do my sauerkraut. I do my kombucha at home. It's lots of fun. So, um, you can check it, try it out. Give it a go. For me. I will. Post, I will. Post it on social media and let me know how you go. No excuses, no excuses. And, you know, I think what that comes to is kind of this idea around um, paleo and Western A price where people sort of – sometimes people will say, well, you know, you can't be exactly like the cave people. You know, you're not going to go and live in a cave. You know, maybe some of the foods that they ate unavailable or, you know, the carrots nowadays are very different to the carrots back then. And and people will sometimes almost try and use that as an excuse of, you know, why not to do paleo or why not to do Western A price. But I guess, you know, the thing people need to understand is that what we're not not trying to go back to – a paleo lifestyle or a Western A price lifestyle, we're, we're just trying to replicate that as close as we possibly can within the framework of our modern world and allow, you know, allow the expression of health that results from that. Absolutely. And I think the key is in something you said a moment ago when you said, first of all, you said it was simple to make sauerkraut, but you also said how simply they might have been eating back in the day. And I think we overcomplicate it. And even when we want to attempt to eat in this ancestral way, we sometimes think, yeah, I need this latest supplement and I need this and that. But I would even suggest to your listeners, just taking one step, even a year, it might sound radical, but when I was first getting into this, and remember, I didn't have any huge presenting health issues, but I took my time. One year was literally like the year of butter. I was just like, I'm going to get rid of my fake margarines and just go to stuff with more simple ingredients. So I started adding butter to my diet. The next year I was like out with the chips and the crackers, you know? And so I just tried to make little simple steps in the right direction. Soon I had slowly but surely changed my diet and my family you would think maybe families would complain oh no they suddenly were like this is amazing they love to come around the table now they would invite their friends over and they were just like blown away because I was a person who didn't really care what we ate and suddenly I realized oh my gosh this is nourishing on a deep level and I just you know our our whole world changed but again we did it gradually yeah, absolutely. And my experience was very similar, Hilda. You know, I, as a 20-something-year-old, you know, I would eat, you know, pie and a pasty and a 1.25-litre soft drink or a soda, as you would call it, uh, for lunch yeah. each day. And, and I just thought that was normal. And and for me, it did. You know, I didn't even know what paleo was when I first started. I just gradually started making changes, you know, one thing at a time, cutting out a little bit of sugar, you know, just gradually changing those things with the diet. But, you know, if you do that just slowly and, and just pick that one little thing, like I said, don't make it hard. It can be very, very simple to make sustainable changes. Um, but if you do that consistently, you know, you end up making a massive amount of change. Absolutely. Um, so, tell us about your podcast. What? May, how did you end up on the Wise Traditions podcast? You want to hear the story? I'd love to. 
It's kind of fun. So what happened was it was 2015 and I was going to Kenya to represent the foundation to talk about wise traditions with these Maasai folks and some people in Nairobi. When I was there, I was just trying to get as much bang for our buck as I could. So I said to a friend, I said, hey, do you know anybody in TV or radio? And he's like, you know, I think I do know someone in radio. So I ended up on the radio station and I thought, okay, wait, if I can get on a radio station in Nairobi, Kenya, like how can I help spread the word about, you know, wellness through good nutrition back in the U.S.? So when I came back, I made the proposal to the foundation. I said, you guys have great ancestral health principles. How can we get them out there? I think you should have a podcast and I'll do it for you. And they said, yes. <laughs> Love it. So Love. that's the long and the short of it. Yeah, I was really thrilled. And one other side little note, which is kind of funny, is that I'm in a band, so I, I play music at my church on Sundays, and this guy in my band, he's like 15-year-old. He played the violin. His name was Sam, and Sam said to me one day, you know what, Hilda, I'm going to start a podcast, <laughs> and so the little competitive spirit in me thought, if a 15-year-old can start a podcast, I can certainly start a podcast, so that kind of was a little spur <laughs> in my side to get me going too. I love that. A little bit of healthy competition goes a long way, Hilda. So, exactly. Um, what's, how long have you been going for and what have been your highlights so far? Who have you interviewed and what topics have been your absolute highlights of your podcast so far? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, we've been going for about a year and a half and a highlight has just actually been how successful it's been. Like people have loved it and that just makes me so happy. I know you must feel the same way. It's like, wow, like I'm reaching people on the other side of the world, you know, it's just so fun. So that's been amazing. And some of my favorite people to talk to, to be honest with you, have actually not been necessarily the health experts, but they've been the farmers who really are experts in their own right. They know the land, they know how to coax it, you know, to get what we mm. need from it, and they know how to care for animals. And they are just my heroes because I live in the city. I actually live in Washington, D.C. So I'm a little bit removed from that life. And so I just admire them so and their wisdom. I just, so a highlight for me was, for example, interviewing Will Winter, who is just an amazing farmer here in the U.S. I think his farm is in Georgia or one of those southern states. And he just I, he just impressed me so much because he also had some health challenges. And then it got him on the train of like really changing over to an organic farm. And it just I, I was blown away by him. And of course, Joel Salat and everybody yeah. has heard of him. And yeah, I think those are some of my favorites. That sounds great. Well, definitely everyone's going to want to check it out. So, obviously, your podcast they can find at the Western A. Price website, which is westernaprice.org. Um, they'll find heaps of other information about the Western A. Price uh, wise traditions and, and you know all the information about the diet and the lifestyle there as well. Um, they can also find out about you by heading to your website, Hilda, which is holistichilda.com, uh, and they can find you on Facebook at Holistic Hilda as well. Um, so, thank you so much for coming on board today, Hilda. It's been an absolute pleasure. Absolutely. I had so much fun, Brett. I look forward to meeting you in person one day. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, hopefully I'll send you down to Australia. That'd be great. You can come to check out our indigenous tribes down here and uh, and we'll show you around. That'd be fun. Sounds good. All right. So, for everyone else, until next week, join the conversation on Facebook. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Join our news at a list at thatpaleoshow.com and let's help grow the paleo tribe worldwide. Join us next week on That Paleo Show. 
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.